Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Okay. Oh, welcome to the Building Science. To the Building Science Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. So hello and welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm here, as always, because of my great good fortune with my friend, partner, sidekick, Miguel. Say hello. Hey, everyone. It's uh, morning for us, but uh, evening for our guest. (laughs) This is our first international interview. Um, Let's get to it. So today, we are going to be talking about building performance from the angle uh, of indoor air quality, or I should say from the perspective of the human lungs and the whole circulatory system that's downstream of the lungs, right? So it's interesting. Air is this this compressible fluid you live your life immersed in. And it's interesting that this thing that you would call you, I bet you you would call your blood you, well, the air is constantly exchanging in and out of your blood. So you are constantly uh, blending this thing you call you with this thing you call the air in the room. So we're going to get started talking about that with um, Stanton Wong, who is the president of the Reset Standard. And Stanton is in Shanghai, China. And um, please say hello to our audience, Stanton, and uh, tell us how things are in Shanghai today. Hello. Um, thank you very much, Christophe. Miguel. Shanghai is nice. It's a, it's a good day today. I'm looking out the window and the air quality looks decent. So in China, like you could see the air quality. It's not just a, it's not just a number anymore. Whoa! I see house plants behind you. We're on a Zoom call, folks. Um, is that for air quality, or is that just? Uh, no, we like just it? we just like plants. My wife and I like plants, so we buy a lot of plants. She got into um, one of our really good friends has like a forest in her home. So after we visited, um, my wife started buying plants almost every one one every week. So we have like a huge amount of plants in, at home now. Okay. And so when you said you... This is just I, one corner. When I asked him how Shanghai was, he turned and looked over his shoulder. Is it sometimes... So you can literally tell if it's bad air quality day or good air quality day. Yeah. So, so in Shanghai, there are a lot of tall buildings. Um, if you can see the tall buildings in the distance, that means the air quality is good. But sometimes it gets fuzzy and it's, it's very clear that it's not because of fog. So that's when you know air quality is really bad. So you get this kind of gray fuzz in the distance. That's, um, that's PM 2.5. Awesome. Okay. So interestingly, here in the U.S., uh, we haven't agreed to um, many of these international climate accords because we like to use the sky as our kind of our free waste depository. And <laughs> China's doing a lot of that, too. I, would, I was going to say sewer, but that sounds yeah. irreverent. China's doing a lot of that, too. And it's this interesting thing because we all are downstream, you know, as far as the atmosphere goes. Do you know does poor air quality in China, I believe I've heard it makes it all the way across the Pacific Ocean and impacts the West Coast? It does. That is definitely a known thing. So um, air quality, like PM2.5, small enough particles can last, uh, can stay in the air for a significant amount of time. And so... uh, the winds that bring um, air across the Pacific can easily bring um, PM2.5 particles over as well. Wow. Any idea how long it takes to transit across the 
I guess it depends on the wind speed. That I'm, yeah, that I'm not 100% sure on. I just know that it does. So, like, one of the funny things um, that happens here is I have a lot of friends in Beijing, and whenever they say, they take pictures of how nice the sky is sometimes because Beijing air quality can get really nice. When it does get really nice, right when I see those photos, I know for a fact that Shanghai's air quality is really bad. And it's because if their air quality is really good, it's because the wind blew it uh, from the north down to the south. And so all of a sudden, the air is really clear over there, and then the air is really bad over here. Oh, my goodness. And that's approximately just a few hours of time for it to happen. So you're downstream of Beijing. Correct. And when their air mass moves south quickly, it's coming from north of them, which is cleaner, and they're getting cleaner, and you're getting there. Oh, wow. That's interesting. You're dirty. Correct. And, and winter is especially bad because um, China has a policy where the northern area has um, central heating. And to power that, they use a lot of coal still. Oh, They're trying to get off of it, but it's, it's something that's established. They can't just like remove central heating from everybody. Um, they actually tried that one year in a certain area, and all the pipes froze. Everything, all the infrastructure started breaking, and so they stopped, doing, they stopped trying to right. do that. Right. But yeah, so with central heating in the north, it it's winters are very um, bad in terms of air quality. Yeah, and that's not an easy retrofit for those big central systems. Yeah, I, I do know that for China, they have this thing called the five-year plan. So every five years, they have like a very strict um, list of goals that they're trying to achieve. Right. Uh, this is the first five-year plan where environment has been a huge part of it. So it's kind of exciting to see... Um, at least that China's making a big effort to curb um, environmental issues. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's the first I've heard of that. Yeah. Is it um, like a, a sea change in the government, or is it um, how, to what do you attribute that? And actually, I, I realize we're getting farther and farther afield from our <laughs> topic. What do you um, think? What do you think? I, I think that environment issues has, have always been something that the government has been thinking about it's just never been high enough priority because their first priority was to deal with um the poorer areas like poverty issues um so a lot of it was building infrastructure and um dealing with because because china in the east it looks a lot better now like with shanghai beijing shenzhen the bigger cities but the western uh western china is still very underdeveloped so a lot of the efforts were more on poverty alleviation. But now um, it's gone to the point where most most of the population is in some way being taken care of. Um, and so they're moving towards longer term um, initiatives like environment. That's great. That's really great to hear. OK, bringing you back, I realized that um, somehow we didn't actually discuss what you're doing in your role as president of the Reset Standard. We should start off with explaining what the reset standard is. Let's start out. And then what I can the talk about <laughs> with my role. Okay. The reset standard is a data standard around how to collect data for um, air quality. Okay. And so I say air quality now, but we're actually expanding into not just air quality, but a bunch of other things, um, including water, energy, and waste. And so the, the concept behind it is that... Um, we started this entire thing because our company initially was looking at materials and TVOC off-gassing. Um, we built a bunch of calculators looking, uh, trying to guess how much TVOC would be off-gassing in a certain space. Um, 
if you installed all those materials. Right. And what we discovered was every time we wrote a new calculator, tweaked a new calculator, calculator, it was never correct. It's just like trying to put a bunch of metrics on the paper and then trying to use that for actual operations was almost never accurate. So um, this was approximately seven years ago. We found two different companies in China who were in the process of building uh, more cost-effective sensors, including PM2.5 sensors. We worked with them to design the first um, model that we would start using for continuous monitoring that was within a price range that we thought was reasonable. Um, And... So once we saw that data, immediately everything changed for us because we saw things that we never were able to visibly see before in the form of data to show what was happening in, with air quality. And um, that's how we started the standard. We thought that there's so much um, power in continuous monitoring that we have to figure out a way to get more people to use it. And so that's the genesis of uh, Reset. I didn't do it justice so, you know, with the introduction. So it's a building performance standard. And it's fundamentally sensor-based, performance-driven. It's based on continuous monitoring of the life of a project. And you yep. can lose certification, which I actually, I mean, I wouldn't love to lose certification, but I think that's great. <laughs> you put some teeth into it. Whereas if you stop yeah. monitoring or if you keep monitoring and your IAQ goes down, you're no longer reset certified. That Correct. is awesome. One of the things that a lot of people who initially start doing reset, they look at it and think, oh, this is this is super easy. We can we just install some monitors and we're good to go. And then once they start trying to do it, they discover this is the hardest thing because there are actually a lot of air quality factors that you can't even control in your own space. One of the most uh, interesting, or not the interesting, one of the more common ones is if you're in a building with other tenants, other like occupants, their space especially if you have a central HVAC system, their space will affect your space. And so what do you do? Do you send a letter over to them and tell them you have a really high TVOC over there? Please fix it. Don't worry so yeah, much. It's person. really hard. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the monitors. Um, and you said you worked with uh, a company or two to develop them. Are you still working with those original companies? Yeah, we still have really good relationships with them. Actually, just like a vocabulary uh, question here. Is there fundamentally a difference between a monitor and a sensor? I guess, a, yes, please explain that. I think there is actually as I ask it, but let's hear that. So in, from our perspective, we consider the monitor the product. So once you compile everything together, build it into a product to be installed, that's what we would call a monitor. And then the sensors are the individual sensors that go inside the monitor. So for example, with air quality in the reset standard, we look at five different um, parameters. We look at PM 2.5, CO2, TVOC, temperature, and humidity. So each five, like each of these five things should be its own separate sensor. Typically, temperature and humidity come together as one package sensor from a sensor manufacturer. Um, So that's typically just one by itself. But PM25 has to be separate. CO2 typically should be separate. There are manufacturers or sensors who put CO2 with temperature and humidity. Mm -hmm. The, The worst we've seen when we were initially doing testing for monitors is... TVOC being derived from CO2. So no TVOC sensor, but they say that their monitor can monitor um, TVOC. So the separation is that a monitor is the final product from our perspective, and then sensors are the individual sensors that go into the monitor. Got it. 
Right. And I was actually thinking you would include in the monitor the data con connection that helps you continuously monitor, right? So monitor, interestingly, yep. could be a noun or a verb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're completely right. Like the final product, we have to consider connectivity and also how stable it is in terms of just how it's constructed. Um, all of that stuff is part of it because with our standard, our goal is to have continuous monitoring and we want monitors are stable and can be installed and stay in place for a long time. Yeah. Okay. So I want to focus more on the monitoring and the sensing, but before we leave that, what you just said is interesting. Um, you need continuous monitoring. How hard is that? I mean, it has, like, how lenient are you? Like if the internet goes down in an area, do the sensors store the data on, on board and then send it? Or how hard is monitoring? Is it a, a, a quite a hurdle? I think that as of today, there's still a few hurdles to deal with, mainly because in a corporate environment, there are certain um, restrictions. Um, what's What we've seen so far is um, monitors typically currently don't have anything on board to record data. So it's if the internet's gone, you, you don't have data. There are a few products that have onboard memory. So they're, they are obviously a much more interesting um, product in terms of um, making sure you have all the data, but the problem is they're all obviously typically more expensive as well. So it's it's a cost um, cost analysis kind of thing. In the market right now, I think because all the all the sensors or all the monitors that we certify, they're all going to be good, good enough um, for our purposes, and we think installed long term they should be fine. The thing that I would say is worth considering is typically what your connectivity requirements are. So we've worked with some we've worked with some corporate tenants um, who are more restrictive on data, which is something that you would never consider if you're not doing continuous monitoring, just data and connectivity, like internet um, connectivity. So they would require you to figure out a way to um, get everything connected, but not use any of their internet services. So like you can't use their Wi-Fi, you cannot use, you can't get into their local network because there's security issues. Whoa. That's not something that's related to the monitor anymore. It's just when you're installing these things, you have to uh, help the client figure out all these details on connectivity. So it's it's a, lar a large amount of it becomes IT work. Mm -hmm. I can see that. You know, I can see that's a yeah. serious business consideration. Okay, staying on the sensor level, the sensors are inside mm -hmm. the monitor, um, and you have the big five, right? You have PM, CO2, TVOC, and then RH and T. Do you require plus or minus certain percent of full scale or... Do you get to that level with your standard, or is there how does how do yeah. you, how do you get to be, have an approved uh, monitor? So, our we have a our testing methodology is relatively simple. Our goal is to we we take we ask for five different or five monitors from a manufacturer, and we test it across approximately a month and a half to two months uh, continuously, and then our goal is to see whether or not they can perform uniformly. So we do have a percentage, and how the percentage works is we would generate peaks and trials in the data across the month and a half to two months, and then we would look at some of the peaks and see whether or not the five devices are within the whatever range we've listed, typically around 15 to 20% um, from the average of those five. Okay, so you're looking at so both accuracy and precision. Correct. 
And more more than anything, we're looking at whether or not the five are uniform because you can tweak um, the numbers with calibration and um, with algorithms to make it more aligned. So we're not too worried about complete accuracy as long as the trend follows the reference that we are um, that we're running beside it. Uh, but if the five start getting really wacky in the sense that like a month and a half later, monitor number four starts getting really, really high, right? That shows a significant drift within just one point one and a half months. And that would start failing the monitor because we think that, you know, you're, you're supposed to be installing these for years. Yeah. And so if it drifts really quickly, that's an issue. It, it's, a, it's more of a quality issue. So what we're looking for is just the build quality of the monitors to make sure that um, they can perform um, without too much headache for the clients. Are they coming from common sources? Like, is there like a centralized sensor manufacturer that sells to a lot of different people that are making different monitors from it? Yes. So um, initially, we weren't asking for sensor information from the different monitors. But lately, I think last year, we started asking for exactly what sensor goes into each um each monitor when they're getting accredited. And the reason for that is because we've learned that different manufacturers, um, different sensors will perform differently in different situations. The most um, headache-inducing one is TVOC because TVOC doesn't have a, a defined um, way to test for because there's, too, there's so many VOCs. Right. And so what we've started doing is asking for this information so that we can start looking at um, across the board on uh, if you're using a specific sensor, how is it affecting, like, how is it performing in different situations? Is it extremely um, sensitive to alcohol or is it more sensitive to perfume or um, formaldehyde? Like, how was it tested? What are the numbers? So that's something that we are trying to collect. Um, we don't have any report on this yet because we just started, but um, our goal is to start um, looking at sensors separately and also looking at ways to test them in the future. Mm -hmm. That's great. Okay, so staying on TVOCs now, that was your original that was your original kind of metric that you were looking at. And uh, did you learn anything that, that, that sticks in your mind about like, um, yikes, there's a lot of TVOCs coming out of building material X. Let's not use that. Or, uh, or any stories like, I guess you, like, like I come to you and I want my company to have its air quality monitored. And it turns yeah. out I really didn't because <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think TVOC app three stories are fun to tell. The first one is we were in a hotel with, um, with a monitor. And what we discovered was that the TVOC levels are rising a little bit every day. So what was happening was um, uh, the fresh air system gets turned on for I don't know how many hours in that hotel. But Let's just say it was 12 hours. Um, it gets turned on for 12 hours. It flushes out part of the TVOC in the room. But then at night when it turns off, TVOC starts rising. And the 12 hours where it's turned off is collects more TVOC than the 12 hours it can flush out. Oh my so gosh. gradually, That's every day... Enough. Exactly. So you see the staircase over a week um, when we were Was that a new that hotel? Um, yes, it was a new hotel. So painted, new furniture, new finishes. Correct. But it wasn't new to the point where that should be happening. We didn't exactly figure out exactly what was off-gassing, but it was just that we knew that the room was having an off-gassing issue, and that's the report we gave them. 
Okay. This was before reset started. So this was when we we're initially playing with the sensors. Interesting. Interesting. And you said yeah. there was two more stories. Yep. The second story is on flushouts. So we have a few graphs. Um, one of them very clear that when you're doing certain certifications, um, there's always a like you always have a flushout period, not just for certifications, but before you hand the project to a client. So you'd have your, all your windows open and everything. But if you were doing a certification, typically you would have a one-time um, like audit for air quality as well. So someone would come in with like the bulb that you collect air in and you take it to the lab. So during the flush-out period, you actually can clear out a lot of the air. So TVOC looks great, PM2.5 looks great, CO2 looks great. And then you do your test and it looks excellent. Close all the windows, close all the doors. Um, next week, your TVOC levels are right back at an extreme level that you wouldn't have imagined. And so it's, it's the reason that we advocate for continuous monitoring is because that's a huge trend that you can detect really, really easily. And, um, and it's just, you're, you're, there's so much um, health damage if you don't take this into consideration. And it's not expensive anymore. Like just install for the month or two when you're um, when you're finishing up all your furnishing, um, and then you'll have a good idea of what this current situation is. Mm -hmm. The last story is um, there was a project that we were that was doing a reset, and on a specific day, all of a sudden TVOC levels went like this. So um, what I just drew with my hands is um, it just spiked and it stayed higher, right? And it stayed at that level for the next couple of days. And so Power plant they failed that there. month. <laughs> yeah. They, they emailed us. Well, they failed that month for reset. They emailed us to ask what was going on. We looked at the data and we said, what did you bring into your office on that specific date, the 18th? And um, they went to their admin team, their facilities team. They asked around and they figured out that they installed two whiteboard monitors, uh, uh, two whiteboards into the office um, on that day. Wow. And what we discovered was that it was the glue that they used to glue the whiteboard on that had huge TVOC issues. And so like with that, what we discovered, well, it wasn't something we discovered anew, but um, construction teams, at least um, especially in China, they don't. Um, necessarily follow all the material requirements that you ask them to, mainly because they're also trying to save costs. So unless you require them to know about TVOC, they're going to use the cheapest glue that can make sure the whiteboard stays on. Yeah, yeah, and and I'd say many construction teams might not have the sophistication to understand to, to discern between a high VOC and a low VOC adhesive. Correct. Okay, but you mentioned it was like a step function change. It yep. must have been a step function with some gradually decreasing tail. Uh, how long does it, or do those glues, are they the gift that keeps on giving? They just, it's like an SVOC. So surprising, surprisingly, TVOCs, a lot of materials can off-gas for three to six months easily. And so that glue was one of the really bad ones. Like it was... Yeah, yeah, you know, it occurs to me, so sorry, audience, but um, hey, Stanton, what's a TVOC? What, is that, what do those four letters mean? <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, TVOC stands, stands for Total Volatile Organic Compounds, and uh, the most um, common one that we hear about is formaldehyde. So different, uh, aside from formaldehyde, there's benzene, and then there's a lot of other zines. Um, so aldehydes. like really <laughs> yeah. aldehydes, um, alcohol also kind of falls into it. 
because almost every sensor will detect ethanol. And so that's that's essentially what TVOCs are. And, and you can find them in a lot of material furnishings that require paint or a... Um, or a finish, like so wood finishes, anything that um, had a smell initially when you're painting on it, those are all, those typically all have VOCs. Can I, <clears throat> using the Mark One, you know, mammal nose, human nose that I have, can I detect TVOCs? So you can detect a bunch of TVOCs with your nose. Typically what we detect is um, the higher concentrations of it. So right when you initially painted, it's very noticeable, right? And also when you move into a new office and a new, when you buy a new car, that new car smell is just TVOCs. (laughs) But uh, like you can smell it at a certain um, level. And then after certain levels, when it gets low enough, you start not smelling it, but it could still be slightly bad for your health if you're in that environment for a long time. There's also situations where you're smelling VOCs, but there are VOCs that aren't harmful to your body. So, so like with, with continuous monitoring, what it really gives you is just the trends um, and approximate numbers because they're not going to be 100% accurate, and for, especially for TVOCs. So what you would want to do with the numbers from continuous monitoring for TVOCs is if it is past a certain point and it's consistently above a certain number, you might want to do a lab test just to guarantee, um, uh, just to understand exactly what TVOCs are in the air. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that means some air sample that goes to a Fourier spectrum mass spectrometer or some, some sort of mass spec. Correct. And that brings me back to, you mentioned, I think, a bulb. Was it a bulb to collect air, like B-U-L-B? Yeah, so I, I couldn't think of the term, but it's oh, essentially, okay. <laughs> it's a it, it's a case that that's like a metal ball Uh and what you would do is you would have a pump that brings a bunch of air into that ball and then you take that ball to the lab and then they would take the air out of the ball and then um test it okay okay and it must be some sort of like um medical grade pump so that you're not getting pump oil accidentally in your sample and yeah i've I've done some sampling around here where I, i use a small medical grade pump to pump air into a desiccant that then gets sent off to a lab and the desiccant arrives in a uh, glass, sealed glass tube with a vacuum, and you break it so it's first exposed to air in your building. So maybe similar. How big is this ball mm-hmm. or bulb or you're talking about? It's like a basketball or um, it's small? It's approximately the size of a basketball. Okay, so pretty big. Yeah, these tubes yeah. I'm talking about, the desiccants are like as big as a, a pen or a pencil. So that's TVOC, Uh, you know, sort of my, I have like a 15-year quality kind of relationship here. And when I first came in, absolutely, VOCs, SVOCs, TVOCs, that that was like a lot of what the content was. And my experience is that um, CO2 and and particularly PM2.5 and even more recently PM0.1 are really Mm -hmm. coming online as big topics. Is that generally the same? your experience with reset or I think with PM 2.5 uh it was it became popular in China at least with the release of um of a documentary um highlighting PM 2.5 issues in China in 2013 it was it was um it was called under the dome under the dome and um right after that released uh it was it was watched millions and millions of times by um, just 
we call them Chinese netizens, as in like Chinese people who are on the net. Uh, and then two days afterwards, it got shut down. Like you couldn't watch it anymore because the government was afraid of how much um, uh, how much this information was going to spread without them being able to control it. So um, PM two point five that that documentary made everyone realize that the fog that they were seeing in Beijing is not fog. Because um, in, in Chinese, it's it's funny the the term for air pollution is uh, fog waste. Like if you put the words together, so so wu uh, wu is fog, wu mai is air pollution. Hmm. And so um, it, we, there was like a lot of running jokes on just like, is this really fog or pollution because of the similarity of the words. Yeah, fascinating. With regard to PM2.5, so it's interesting. I think a lot of people don't quite relate to PM10, PM2.5, PM0.1, right? Because what they seem to think is I'm measuring 10 you know, micrometer aerodynamic diameter particles. No, now I'm measuring 2.5 diameter aerodynamic diameter. Now I'm measuring 0.1. What you're doing is you're measuring 10 and less, 2.5 and less, right? And I I like to think in nanometers when when talking to people about it. So 10,000 nanometers and less, 2,500 nanometers and less, and then 100 nanometers and less. Um, Mm -hmm. Is the reset standard... um, it's still doing 2.5. Does it also try to resolve how many of those are 100 and less? So we are doing a research project on um, on looking at more of these different sizes. And the reason is we're calling it broadband PM2.5 monitoring. So just across the board. And the reason is because we think that there is a lot of data that we can understand once we have a method of tracking all of these at once. Because um, there's a monitor manufacturer, or actually a sensor manufacturer, who's trying to develop something that goes from uh, 10, 5, 2.5, 0.1, and 0. Oh, 2.5, 1, 0.1, just with one sensor. Um, and we are exploring with them what kind of data we can actually get out of this and what can we use, how do we use the data to understand um, what this means. We started with PM2.5, though, um, because PM2.5 is at a size where the particles um, that you breathe into your lungs can't get out anymore. So we have little um, hairs in our lungs that kind of help brush um, particles That's out your of your cilia? lungs. Yeah, your cilia. At 2.5, it's so small that like your hairs trying to brush it up will just, the particle will just roll and fall fall back down. So um, you can imagine that across your life, if you're constantly breathing significant amounts of PM2.5, you will have essentially um, a floor, or not even a floor, just like you'll have PM2.5 particles in your lungs that can't come out. That's, a not, so a, that's not a pleasant thought. <laughs> no. And so um, You can't we just go upside down at, and they'll f- pour out either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you... It's not like your body can handle a certain amount of PM25, but it's just constant exposure to it over long durations of time um, can be a long-term, long-term detriment to your health. And so it's really just like, do you know if your space has high levels of PM25? If it does, you want to try to solve it. You don't want to be like in your workspace environment where you're spending eight hours a day or your bedroom where you're sleeping maybe eight hours a day. Um, you want those environments to be relatively clean so that um, at least most of your day has good air quality. 
so there's an interesting kind of riddle here in the sense that there's um, like PM 2.5, PM 10, which are usually measured in, uh, you know, a mass density, so micrograms per cubic meter. Yes. But as soon as you get really small, like the 0.1 for sure, you know, even in the one, um, you could have a lot of them, and it's going to read yes. low. So, yeah, comment on that. It sounds like you're, you're tracking with me here on this question. So, so there's been an evolution um, of PM 2.5 sensors in the past, I'd say, eight years. Uh, previously, PM 2.5 sensors that were super expensive and used for outdoor monitoring was um, using gravimetric. Uh, um, which just means they literally try to collect the the air from the uh, that they try to collect the particles from the air um, and then put it on a on a piece of tape and then they measure how much that tape weighs. So that was accurate in terms of oh this is how many um, micrograms per per uh, cubic meter in this air right. Um, Right now, though, almost all PM2.5 sensors are using light scattering right. um, lasers. So what that means is you're essentially counting the n- number of particles in the air. So with CO2, we've been using parts, uh, particles per million. Um, we're move- like the, numbers that, the raw numbers coming out of the sensors for PM2.5 nowadays are essentially that as well. So they're so using they're particle conversion factor. Resolved, Correct. Which is very important. And I, yeah, I completely agree. And every single, like if you want to translate it to um, micrograms per cubic meter, it's different for every single region. So sensors or mo- monitors that like come 10, out of... region 2.51, excuse me, or 0.1, or you oh, mean sorry. a region around the country? Like region around the country. Okay. So every monitor that comes out of Beijing... Um, will read higher than every monitor that comes out of Shanghai. Because when they calibrate from and try to convert from PPM or PPB to micrograms per cubic meter, um, they're using a different calibration methodology because the numbers are different. Uh, because the particles in the air have different weights, right? So in, in, in Beijing, because it's more further north, there's a lot more metals in the air while less in Shanghai. And so the the weight of the particles in the air will typically be high. So I'm saying I have and a so, million particles and their average weight is higher in Beijing than in Shanghai. So there, there's more correct. of them. Mm-hmm. More correct. mass. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we would want to pursue uh, when we have time, which we have not too much of, <laughs> but um, is we're, we've been calling it the, internally we've been calling it the K project. So it's a K factor that um, every region would have um, where you're comparing a gravimetric with a laser particle sensor. Um, and that factor might change over time. Right. And cool. then we want, we want all monitors to be using just the raw data, the PPM or the PPB number. And then you can translate that depending on what region of the world you're in. That's awesome. Yeah. RH and T are fascinating to me, and, I, and we can dig in on them another time. But let's, let's talk CO2, and then I have a few more questions. And So CO2, uh, here in the U.S., Harvard has their COG study, their cognition study. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's setting some pretty low, relative, relatively low CO2 levels in terms of, like, when do you start to go, hmm, that's not too low? They're saying as low as 800 now. Yeah. Um, I have... 
CO2 detector that I, I take with me. It's a Telair 7001, I think, I take around with me. And, dude, it is, it is 800 and higher in almost any commercial building, school, airplane, airport that I go to. Yeah. Um, anyway, thoughts on what levels of CO2 does the reset program start to, you know, say this is not okay? And you get me. You get my question. Yep. So we have our limit at um, 1,000, and that's an average across a day. So we don't say, like, you can't pass um, 1,000 is just during the working day, eight hours, are you averaging below that? So the real number that we're looking at is not really 1,000. It's probably more closer to 1,500 um, in terms of the top that you're trying to, that you're hitting. So you don't do a 24-hour um, day. That would make it really easier for him. Yeah, that that's not, doesn't really make sense <laughs> if um, no one's in the space and then you're trying to average it with that time as well. So um, what CO2 is interesting because I, I don't think CO2, I think at reset, we don't think it's going to be, it's the whole picture. It's really just a proxy because it's, uh, it's easy to measure. The sensors are cheap and um, are cheap and accurate. And so you can get a very good idea of what the fresh air situation is in a space. But um, I think for the, the Harvard study, um, it's it's very it uses CO two really well as a proxy to understand how stale air essentially affects humans and their productivity. So something that we were exploring was whether or not there's a way to measure bioeffluence. So like just different gases that off off gas from your body, right? And whether or not that's something that's more effective in um, understanding how it affects your uh, productivity, but we just don't have sensors that can really do a good job of detecting that yet. So it's it's something more in the future. But um, right now, I think CO2 has become a very big um, issue because of COVID. So let me speak for China first. China, um, at least in the bigger cities, they require all HVAC systems to run at 100% capacity. Wow. Right now. From an energy perspective, that's extreme. And also, it's winter right now. So that, like most buildings, can't maintain the temperature and humidity required um, to be comfortable indoors. So that's, that's not a good thing, right, for a building. And I think in the U.S., there's also just this huge messaging of you want to ventilate, bring as much fresh air in as possible. And, and the idea is correct. You want to dilute the air as much as possible because how the viruses... Um, get passed on is through the air, mostly through the air via aerosol particles. Because when we speak, when we cough, we are putting little air droplets in the air. And if you have COVID, um, the virus particles will exist in that air particle, um, in that aerosol. If you breathe enough aerosols into your lungs, like that's when you can get uh, the virus transmitted to you. So it's, there's, there's like um, two factors. It's how much you take in to your body and, and also density. how strong, yeah, the density and um, how strong your immune system is. So if your immune system is very strong, you might be able to take care of those particles. Essentially, CO2 right now, from our perspective, is if you're not monitoring it, um, you're not going to have a good way to adjust your fresh air intake because you don't have any data. But if you had the data, you would know that, for example, an office currently has two people. CO2 levels are at negligible. It's the same as outside. So do you need to bring in that much fresh air? 
other than just circulating the air and make sure it's diluting? Probably not. If there's a lot of people, that's when you consider starting to bring more fresh air in. So from that perspective, I think that CO2 is very important to at least monitor continuously. And um, from our perspective, we were actually doing a lot of research on COVID um, starting in March of last year. And we came up with something that we don't have a formal name for yet, but we're leaning closer and closer now towards the recent COVID index. And what it's trying to do is look at temperature, humidity, um, CO2, and PM25 as continuous um, uh, continuous numbers, um, where using those numbers to essentially optimize how your building should be for to, to limit the amount of possibility for transmission, viral transmission. I love it. It's interesting also because um, we were in a webinar with a bunch of other um, academics and from what we've gathered, at least in the between the 13 um, academics and us, we were the only ones looking at continuous monitoring, while everyone was more on, if you had this much air coming in, then you should consider this. So it's more of like paper metrics um, instead of looking at live data. And it's because it's, the exposure isn't there yet, right? Like not everyone is working with continuous monitoring. Yeah, I love it. There's... And- Boy, now you've really challenged me as the interviewer because I've been studying the Wells-Riley equation and doing a lot of modeling and talking to different people about it. And it's just like it's like this whole module now I want to unload on you, but I, I won't. Um, <laughs> but I do want to point out two things. One is, yeah, this idea whether CO2 itself is a negative impact on, on human function and cognition or if it's a proxy. And I think most people, and you know, you and I are currently in that category where it's a proxy and that surface chemistry, you know, on our skin and you know, occupancy generally, we are creating that. And there's a there's related to that, there's this interesting uh, kind of reality that I can I can bring my CO2 sensor in here and you know, I can be in here talking with it and it'll it'll start to get to a certain level and then I leave and I can track the the fall off rate of CO2 and I can from that I can derive mm-hmm. my air changes per hour. And from that I could be kind of like, oh, I'm I know I'm relatively safe because I have a good, you know, say I have an ACH of five or something. But yeah. the interesting thing with COVID is you can reduce the pollutant density in terms of the COVID in the air, the you know, the the virion as a pathogen. I can reduce the virion density through recirculation filtration, you know, through HEPA or, or something, or through mm-hmm. portable filtration, and the CO2 isn't going to be affected, right? So there's this interesting thing. You True. can't really just use CO2 to say that it's reduced COVID risk. So I love that you have continuous. I love that you have this constellation of factors. And the last thing I was going to say about it, and, and my, wife, my wife, who's a general manager here, we were musing a couple days ago about what you want is you want all those sensors on a drone that are hovering, you know, about 100 feet ahead of you as you walk around through your day. So in real time, you could be like, I'm going to go into the grocery store. How's the air in the grocery store? Oh, I'm not, never mind. I'm not going into the grocery store. Yeah. Have you put it on a drone yet, Stanton? <laughs> we haven't. In the reset standard, we also um, require the data to be packaged in the 30-minute averages because air is very volatile. Like, it changes extremely quickly. So the the drone idea is... You're right. It would be, be is, really is, real time. You're right. Yeah. It would be super real time. And um, it would Couldn't be, be, feet it would be ahead, good to either. get a very... Like, if you brought a drone into an indoor space, you would immediately get an idea. But you don't really need a drone for that. You can just you carry just, something with yeah, you. Yeah, walk in. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah I but it. I mean, like the future would be better, of course, if the monitor, like a monitor, was installed in the, in the building, in the grocery yeah. store, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so let's let's bring the the last topic in. I mean, we we could. Uh, I would love to keep this going. We've come close to an hour now. I think it's going to take us a little bit to wrap up. So I, I do a two, part two next time. Yeah, I, I would love to. And and if you're offering, I, I accept. So I was looking through <laughs> the monitors, and you had Tongdi and DST. Um, I saw those on the list, and then so you had several like Man and Hummel. Airveda, which I like that one. AirSense, blah blah blah, lots of them. The only two that I yep. know of, here, for from you know, kind of shopping for these things here in the U.S., were the AirThings Wave Plus and the Kytera. And in fact, you were specking a different monitor. I was thinking of their Laser Egg Plus CO2 or their Laser Egg Plus Chemical. Um, are those? Like, on your list of monitors, are those made all around the world? Are those mostly made in Asia and then shipped all around the world? Do you have a sense of that? So the first three to four years, so before 2017, Mm -hmm. um, these were all made in China. Kaitero is made in China. Um, Actually, AirThings is made in China because all of manufacturing is made in China. Um, So every product on this list is probably made in China in some way, but um, they're... I think the key factor is where is their um, business operations. Every company is now expanding all over the world. So, um, for example, Kytera and AirThings. Uh, Kytera started off in China because um, PM2.5 was initially really a, an issue that was in China and nowhere else. But um, now, after their collaboration with um, Apple, their monitors started selling everywhere. But the laser egg that you were talking about is a consumer version. It's it was um, designed in a way where they would calibrate it once and then ship it out, and then that's it. They don't have to deal with it anymore. Um, they have newer units that are more for business design for um, ca- like future calibration, designed for maintenance, that kind of stuff, um, which makes more sense for um, corporate clients or just the commercial area. Um, with AirThings, they're a new one um, that was added to our list a few months ago. They just got tested. Their operations are out of somewhere in Europe, I think Norway, but they're expanding all over the world. They have operations in the US, they have operations in um, Europe, they're, but they're built. Like the devices are, are probably, I'm pretty sure they're made in China, but they're following like um, their quality control processes based on something that they have in. Uh, Norway. So it's like where they're manufactured doesn't matter nearly as much anymore because I think, like, I mean, iPhones, most of iPhones are made in China. Teslas are now made in China. But uh, um, the it comes down to where are the operations. So if they have a sales team in a country, then it's going to be a lot easier to access. If they don't have a sales team, then that's going to be a pain in the butt because then you have to deal with tax, customs, all that stuff. It's a really, it's really annoying. Mm-hmm. So maybe not just operations, but the engineering design, and then the manufacturing is based on that design standard or something. I, I used to be, I used to actually manage a windsurfing shop um, years ago, and now I'm big into kiting. And I know that they're really made in the same plants, but they're made to different specs using the same material. Like what's the stitch mm. rate, and how many stitches per inch, and 
how many blah blah blah. So yeah, I, I get it that there's a it's coming in a different standard, and that actually is a really rich area that we'll have to kind of leave for later. And I'm going to lead you to my last question. So what we didn't tell you guys up front is that reset standard has basically two main application areas currently, which are commercial interiors, you know, which is really important because they're occupied. Um, and then the core and shell, which I guess sometimes could be occupied, sometimes not, but that's really more of a, in my opinion, a health check of the HVAC system. Um, tell me a little of that core and shell and then I'll lead you to the last question, please. Yeah. We're telling so, about both um, those core, commercial interiors and core and shell, please. So commercial interiors was, it's, it's the first thing you could think of. So if you're in a space you want to install monitors that understand the space. You would try to, we, we require you to install it somewhere within um, breathing height. So one to 1.8 meters. And the reason for that is we were seeing initially most air quality monitors installed in the ceiling. If you have a low ceiling, fine. doesn't really matter as much, but a lot of ceilings are significantly high. Yeah, so there's no one up meters. there breathing that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And and particles and TVOCs, they, they don't, they're not going to dilute completely. It's going to, there is weight involved, right? So they, you want to measure approximately where your breathing level is. Right. And you stir things up um, off the floor when you walk and yeah. Exactly. And it doesn't necessarily go up to the ceiling. So, so that's, that's one of the rules for commercial interiors, but generally it's just measuring your, your interior space. We got a client, um, when we were first starting off, like a year after we initially published reset, what that was asking about, um, their tenant, that was saying, hey, why is the air quality so bad, right? But the the person we we're talking to, they're a land, landlord, they own a building, they wanted to prove that their air quality was good. So we decided to come up with um, corn shell, which is to monitor the air being delivered by the building to the tenants. And this separates the responsibility of who has to do what. Because if you, as a building, can show that the air quality is, that you're delivering is good, then the problem is with the tenant. And most building owners or landlords can't, like, can't change, like they don't have control over the tenant space. So because of that, you can separate the responsibility. And um, if you want, the landlord can have, has an opportunity to offer additional services to the tenant to say, hey, um, we can see our data shows that our air quality is uh, good. So if you have air quality issues, um, we can either help you start monitoring it and then come up with a solution or, you have to figure it out because this is your problem. And we've had multiple buildings using Reset, um, Core and Show, who have come back to us and said that this has helped us deal with a lot of issues with tenants, especially in China, because um, there's less control over the materials used in outfitting a space. And so um, having this, this data made it really easy for landlords and building owners to just say, like, this is your problem. Um, we have the data to show that we're doing everything we can to give you the best air quality. It's just you have to fix it locally. Right. So you have, if you have high pollutant emission materials, you'll know it, and it's not a, it's not a source in the system. That's fascinating. It, it occurs to me that like if I'm, shop, I'm a commercial firm shopping for my new office uh, and I can shop per the reset standard um, and know like this office has, you know, they're they're doing a good job on filtration and ventilation, whereas this one next door is not. Have you seen anything like premiums on rent? So we don't have, I think we have too few projects to really have like statistical um, numbers that are worth looking at. Okay. We do have 
anecdotes where there have been um, uh, anchor tenants who have moved to a building with um, Reset because the, the air quality data was being tracked. So in China, a lot of um, a lot of MNCs, multinationals, companies, because of the because of the people they hire, a lot of people are coming from overseas. So they are much more. Um, they care a lot more about air quality because it's they're choosing to come to China, right? And then air quality is not a problem at home, but China it is. So they want to make sure that their like their work environment is nice. For MNCs, air quality is significantly more important in China. For local companies, it's kind of just there's nothing you can do about it. The, their mentality is there's nothing you can do about it. It's been around the whole time, whatever. So there's still a bit of education on that front, and I think if um, Prices continue to go down. There will be more interest, but right now the focus is on MNCs and MNC anchor tenants for some of these really um, five-star like buildings, commercial buildings. They are looking at buildings that have air quality monitoring. That's fascinating. Got it. Uh, it seems like those MNCs would also be uh, really wanting to know what the air quality is at the schools and daycare places they're putting their kids. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's another fun story. Almost um, every school that we've worked with is scared of us because <laughs> because they've they've tried to monitor and a bunch of schools tried to make it public so like parents can see it and there are a lot of mothers who don't have anything better to do than to check every other hour or every half an hour when the data gets updated and if the data shows anything that's higher than the recommended number. They'll call the school, right then. And so that's a huge, yeah, right then. That's a huge headache, and that's it's kind of like misunderstanding the point of air quality monitoring. It's not about the immediate number; it's about the trend and the long term. And so, like schools stopped a lot of schools stopped doing this mainly because they'll say they have air quality monitoring, but they're not publicizing you can't anything see it. because they can't <laughs> deal. With, yeah, they can't deal with the the calls that are coming in every hour. I get it. I get it. Okay, that's a really good segue actually to my last topic because uh, I have some good friends that have gotten into air quality monitoring over the years in their homes, which is where I want to wrap up the show, the interview. Um, and what happens sometimes is like, like first of all, it's fascinating when I cook, when I shower, when I clean. Wow, look, the VOCs, the CO2, people come over, I can see the CO2 go up. So first of all, it's like that alone is a huge like light bulb moment. Wow, this clear compressible fluid I live my life in is tremendously varying. Like I have weather in my room, in my house. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting moment. But the thing is, is that like often it's I just had a baby and I'm really I'm gonna be on my game with air quality, so I got all these fancy filters from the HVAC company and my air quality's terrible. You know, it turns out it's terrible. Like there's I've got sources in I've got those Glade plugins. I guess I said a manufacturer that I shouldn't. Whatever. I you know my air quality. <laughs> and so what happens is you end up wishing you didn't know because it turns out that your constellation of lifestyle choices and purchasing leads to bad air quality, which is a good thing. Now you know and you can do something about it, but you don't want to do something about it, right? You want your yeah. lifestyle choices. So um, to you, I guess I'll pose the question, and I imagine it's a business decision, like a, like you need profit, you need to live to fight another day, but why or is there a plan to come into homes, right? Like as you said earlier, where bedrooms are, that's a very important space to keep the air clean. 
I think, like from our perspective, the home we we're, we can write a standard for the home, but we won't build a business around it. And the reason is because um, very few homeowners will be paying a, like a yearly subscription to our platform to be certified. The only situation that we see is um, is we're coming up also with an embodied um, materials standard. So like what materials go into a project, we can see residential um, developers, residential developers using that standard to basically track all the materials that have gone into the building and make that transparently available. Um, and also to, you know, push the industry towards getting more data around um, the ingredients for the materials and uh, the TVOC off-gassing of the materials. But for operating numbers, um, aside from the standard and maybe at some point a platform that allows them to benchmark themselves against others, um, we're not going to be developing business around residential. I can see that. Too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I can see that, that the business model isn't there as much. Uh, frankly, the word first comes up for me would be if there's a large residential apartment building, maybe one near one of those MNC, you know, commercial buildings where it's like a lot of these people mm-hmm. are going to live in this building. Um, that might be a, an application for it. But I get it. Like if it's like I own the walls, I own the HVAC system, um, I can test my own and you know deal with it myself. I don't need to s- sign up for a, a subscription service. Yeah. So alternatively, hotels and service apartments, those would make a lot of sense. Yes. For your, like hotels, the, yes. Exactly. And you so said service? We had service apartments. Um, so that, that just is like long-term apartment rentals where the space was designed by the landlord and you would just rent the space. You would live there for a few months um, and then you're out. But you don't, get to, you don't get to redecorate the place according to your own desires. Right. Got it. Got it. Wow. Well, more than an hour goes by really quickly. Um, we could have taken that, like that COVID topic, my God, Stanton, that alone could have been an easily an hour. Oh, I'm willing to talk about it. I love, like, I've, I've been, like, so I'm, I'm president now, but I started off as just um, a software developer and a product manager for, for some of the stuff we're doing. And so I, I don't have a background in environment. I don't have a background in real estate. I don't have a background in MEP or anything. I'm a software developer uh, coming out of school. And so, like, I've learned so much in these past couple of years, and, like, I can talk about this for forever now because I know so much um, from our experience doing Reset. So I would gladly do part two or part three even. I would love that. I would love that. So any final thoughts on today? Or you could just say thank you and goodbye, whatever, whatever you want. Um, I think, I think that's, that's, that's good for today. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Stanton Long. Thank you for sharing so many fascinating ideas with us. And thank you all for listening. We'll, we'll talk to you next time.